This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series, The Mystery Revealed, and our scripture reading is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, hey, uh, good morning. All right, we're going to go in here a second here. Got it? Is it on? Okay, it's good. Okay, sorry. We didn't do a sound check before, so there you go. Um, good to be with you this morning. Um, we've been in a vision series for the past number of weeks, and today's the final one. We've been considering what would it look like for us to live out our vision of seeing our city renewed by the gospel. And we've been in this letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and we've taken five sections from this letter, and the subtext we've said each week of this letter is this, is that the world is in disharmony. It's out of sorts, both in its relationship to the God who made it and with our relationships with one another. But the mystery that's now been revealed is that God, in the fullness of time, has come back in his promises and has fulfilled it in the person of Jesus, that he's the one who actually brings about order. He's the one who actually restores that which is broken and that which is lost. And this final week, it honestly, as you heard it read, it kind of feels like a scene from Hawkins High School, did I get that? Shire or the Shire or Godric's Hollow in which Paul closes out this letter, in which to this church calling them to stand firm in a cosmic battle against evil. He describes the times as this present darkness. This passage shows us three things. It shows us the transcendence of evil. Secondly, the closeness of evil. And then thirdly, how to defeat it. So let's pray. We'll get in. Father, this morning, what we do not know, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what what we have not, would you give us? For the sake of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, firstly, the transcendence of evil. You know, um, 
As the passage begins, Paul says this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He notes, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what we need to say at first is this, Paul clearly has opposition and enemies that are flesh and blood. He's actually in jail right now as he writes this letter for that very purpose. But as Paul looks out at the day he's living, he's saying there's, there's something bigger going on. There's something transcendent. It's on a cosmic scale. And listen, if, if you're here this morning and you heard this read, in our cultural moment, you might say something like this. Well, I mean, that's this guy who was living in the first century. I mean, that's, that's primitive. They were, they were superstitious. And, you know, we are, we, we've progressed. We know so much more. Or to put it another way, our culture would say this. In our battle against evil, our struggle is only against flesh and blood. And that's period. That's it. So let me just put it this way, because this happens a lot. When you come to the scriptures, oftentimes you read it and you're like, this is so different than how I, how I view the world. And so here's the question, what are you going to do when you come to that in a, in, in a passage in the scriptures? Because it happens a lot. And one of the things you have to be careful of, because we're all guilty of it, is most of us think that the time in which we live is the ultimate vantage point. Most time, most time we think the time in which we live, we see it all. But let me tell you, there's a danger here. Because if you do that, Paul says something here to us. He says, you will reduce, you will be reductionistic in your view of evil. And here's what I mean. There's, there's a passage in Matthew's Gospel it's actually a summary statement in which um, it's just summarizing what Jesus has done, the, the problems that are coming at him and what he's doing with them. So in Matthew 4.24, it says this, speaking about Jesus, and they brought him all the sick, <clears throat> those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Now, <clears throat> I want you to notice something here. Notice the kind of problems that Jesus dealt with. Some were physical diseases. Some were spiritual. Demons are mentioned. There's another word translated epileptics, which actually is where we get the, our English word lunatic, which means to suffer seizures or irrational behavior. In other words, it's mental. And notice, the scriptures, the, this ancient text, it doesn't reduce the problems to one thing or another. It's complex. Different things need different answers. And the scriptures knew the difference. So let me put it this way. Let's say you're facing depression. How are you going to deal with it? Tim Keller is really helpful here. He points this out. If you come from a materialistic worldview in which all you see is just the physical, you're going to say, take a pill. 
If you approach the world from a psychological worldview, you're going to say, talk it out. See a counselor. If you come at it from a primarily religious point of view, you might say, obey, confess your sins. Or if you come from a hypersensitive or hyper-spiritualized point of view, you might see a demon behind everything. Well, which one is it? Well, put it this way. Sometimes depression is physical. Other times, let's be honest, life is hard and we are weary. And we need love and we need support and we need community. Other times the reason we're depressed is because it is moral. There is shame and guilt and there is need of repentance. Other times, dare I say it, there is something demonic. And we need prayer. And we need the scriptures. But you notice something? The one thing you can't do is be reductionistic. And here's what's also interesting. Sometimes these things are actually interlocking. Let me give you an example. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 4, Paul says this, In your anger, do not let the sun go down your anger. Excuse me, in your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down your anger and give the devil a foothold. Notice what Paul says there. Paul doesn't say, when you're angry, the devil made you do it. But nor does he say, you just need merely anger management. Paul actually says there's something tied together here. There's more going on. And, and here's the point, and Keller notes this, the scriptures are the most sophisticated and complex text when it comes to evil. And listen, if you say on the one hand, the problems you face are merely flesh and blood, there's nothing transcendent, that's reductionistic. Or to put it another way, if you are hyper-spiritualized and you see a demon behind everything, do you understand that's actually reductionistic? And if you do that, how are you ever going to defeat evil? But secondly, Paul shows us the closeness of evil. Now, one of the questions when you come to a passage like this, and Paul is talking about this cosmic battle, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, you're just kind of like, well, where's the battle going on? I can't even see this thing. But actually, our text does two things that show us how close the battle is. And the first is this. In verse 12, Paul uses the language of wrestling. And put it this way, Paul could have used a lot of different terms here, but he chooses a term that is talking about a fight that is up close and personal. In other words, this is not drone warfare. This is jujitsu. It means right now, in your life, in my life, it's not something merely over there in Palestine and Israel right now. There's something going on right here. But the second reason why we know it's up close is because Paul begins the passage with the word finally. 
One commentator noted this, and this is what's interesting, because if you've ever read through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, remember as a college student doing this, you get to chapter 6, and he begins in verse 10 to talk about this spiritual warfare, and you just feel like, where did this come from? But when Paul says, finally, it's this, it's a recapitulation of everything he just said. In other words, let me put it this way. Um, do you ever do leftovers? You know, you have something left over, but then you remake it into a casserole. It's something different, but it's the same ingredients. It just tastes a little bit different, add a little seasoning. That's what Paul's doing here. This is nothing different than what he said earlier. So let me give you an example. Right before this, he has just finished up talking about marriage, about parenting, and about the relationship between bond servants and masters. Do you know what that means? That's where the battle's going on. In your parenting? In your marriage? Or how about this? In your issue with authority and in your workplace? That's actually where the battle's going on. Or last week, we were in a section where Paul is talking about you go out into the world to walk as children of light. In other words, you're called out of grace into this new kingdom. And you're to live in a new way in a world that is dark. And there's constantly a battle for the loyalty of your heart. Who are you going to serve out in the world? That's where it is. Or right before that, Paul talks about this taking off the old self, putting on the new self. It's talking about the very reality that all of us are in process, growing into Christ's likeness if you're a Christian. But there's this ongoing battle that all of us deal with of taking off the old, that which is of our old life, and putting on the new self. Or right before that, Paul called the church to maintain unity, which means our relationships with one another. That's where the battle is. Do you see? It's all around you. It's jujitsu. It's up in your grill. It's in my grill. It's in your grill. So if it's transcendent, and it's also right here in our face, then how do we defeat it? Well, notice how Paul starts in verse 10. Paul says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Uh, Notice that. Paul says, you've got to learn to be strong in someone else. That's how you defeat it. Anyone here self-reliant? <laughs> Paul says, you've actually got to learn how to live in such a way where you learn to rely on someone else, namely Christ, the mystery. And here's why. Here's why this is so essential. Look back with me at chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. It's talking about what God has done in this mystery, which is Christ. And notice what it says. He, speaking of God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What's going on here? Well, you remember how we've talked about this each week, that 
That the gospel is news about what God has done in Christ. It's, it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done in the person and work of his son, Jesus. And it's saying this, Christ has already won. He's already won. He's already defeated sin. He's defeated death. And he's defeated Satan. And he's above all those things. The victory is already finished. Now, there's still skirmishes. There's still a battle. But Paul is saying this, you've got to learn to be strong in him. Now, the second thing Paul says is to be strong is to, is to put on this armor. And one of the interesting things about this is that each piece of this armor, except one, is actually something that Christ himself has worn. So, for example, in Isaiah 59, 17, it says this, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Or in Isaiah 11 and 12, it's this promise of this king who would come, who'd bring about justice and mercy, and that this one was fastened with the image of a belt. So let me draw you three ways to be strong in Christ in this passage, to put on the armor. Here they are. You've got to live humbly in what he's done for you. You've got to live confidently in who you are in him. And thirdly, you've got to live reliantly in persistent prayer. So the first thing, live humbly in what he's done for you. And let's take, for example, when Paul says to put on the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14, what, is, what does that mean? Well, the breastplate, it, it protects the core of who you are. I mean, let's be honest. If you're in battle and you get your arm cut off, it's not great, right? It's kind of bad. But if you get your heart, <laughs> you're done, Right? That's the core of who you are. And to put on the breastplate of righteous means that as a Christian, you daily recall and remember and let it capture your imagination that because of Christ's victory on the cross and his perfect life, here's the news. You are completely righteous in God's sight. So let me give you a text. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It's a Paul writes this in this letter. He says, For our sake, he, speaking of God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what Paul is saying there, Jesus, he's perfect. He didn't have any sin. But on the cross, our sin was credited on him. He took it. But then now, in relationship to him, we are made righteous. Not because we are righteous, but because he was righteous and is righteous. In other words, this is the wonderful news about the gospel. Is that Christian, understand this, you will never be more righteous than you are right now. Positionally, before God. Do you understand that? Because Christ has already lived a perfect life. And you've got to daily put that on. And do you know why? Because let's be honest. Some of us, many of us, are dealing with guilt. We're dealing with shame. We're dealing with self-loathing. And what do you do when those accusations come? And they're actually right. (laughs) It's not like they're false. 
Are you going to be self-reliant? Or are you going to rely on the one who has already won? Let me, this is a great quote by Martin Luther. He put it this way. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and, and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? That's some great, like, middle-aged, like, smack talk, right? <laughs> he says, for I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's the breastplate of righteousness right there. But let me put it this way. The other side of this too is that some of us, if we're honest, we, we don't struggle with guilt. Uh, we, we struggle with self-righteousness. We have a critical spirit. We, we look out at others and we say, why can't they get their act together? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty ethically, morally got my life put together. But do you understand, in the gospel, you actually need to repent of your good deeds, of anything you think that merits anything before God. And you do this by remembering that your perfect record has already been obtained, not by you, but by another. And friends, when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, that creates humility and also creates joy. But secondly, you've got to live confidently in who you are because of what he's done. So earlier in Ephesians, Paul calls those to live out a new life in righteousness. In Ephesians 4.24, let's listen to what Paul says. To put on the new self, create after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so one of the ways the breastplate of righteousness is lived out in our lives is by living differently, living out our new humanity. And let me, there's, there's a lot of things in, in chapter four that talk about this, but let me focus in on one because it's so practical. Look what Paul says at verses 31 and 32 of chapter four. Paul says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all, ma- all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do, you. do you see, okay, just think about this for a moment. If you're in middle school or you're in high school, think about what this means. Think about the people at your school that are just, just jerks and they're really mean to you. And when they're mean to you, what happens? If you're normal, what do you hope for them? You hope their life goes horrible right? And that's malice. And do you understand what's happening there? Because the evil that's being done to you is now taking over you, and you are becoming like them. That's where the battle is. And notice what Paul says, you've got to learn to be tender-hearted and kind. Why? Not because they deserve it, But because actually in the gospel, that's what God's been to you. Or think about this way. In your marriage. Some of us, in marriage, if you've married for a long time or a short time, there are moments where you are just bitter. You struggle with bitterness. And sometimes it's because things they've done that have been said to you that are hurtful. Other times it's expectations you had that they haven't met. And Paul says, you've got to get rid of that. 
And by the way, Paul is not saying to do that when they get their act together. It's not when they come halfway. It's actually saying now. Get rid of bitterness. Even now, forgive them. Which means a promise, I will not take this out on you. To put on the breastplate of righteousness, do you notice this? It means when you are dealing with the misery and the hurt and the pain in this world, this sounds odd, but you attack it with righteousness. And do you see how different that is? Now listen, there are five other pieces of armor. (laughs) And we don't have time to hit on each one of these to the depth of the breastplate of righteousness. But let me just summarize a couple thoughts under each one. The belt of truth. In a world that says truth is relative, the belt of truth in chapter 421 says the truth is in Jesus. It means the world is full of a pack of lies and many of them we believe. And you need discernment. You need something to base your life on that can be trusted. And the truth is in Jesus. And then secondly, to live out of that, reality means this, that our lives are to be marked by integrity and honesty. It means if you're hiding anything or you're twisting anything, it means you haven't girded yourself with a belt of truth and you're vulnerable. Or the shoes for feet, readiness given by the gospel of peace. peace. It's a picture of a messenger sent with news about what Christ has done for them and for this world. It means to be ready and prepared and active in sharing the gospel with both Christian and non-Christian. With the shield of faith, it's a picture of a broader community who are grounded in God's promises, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who have this active trust in a world where there are flaming darts coming at you, things like God doesn't care, God doesn't love you, God is not with you. Or fourthly, the helmet of salvation means You're united in Christ. You are secure and you are safe in him no matter what's happening around you. And then lastly, the sword of the Spirit, which allows us, when we are tempted by evil, to hold on to it. When there is false teaching, to have discernment around it. And as one commentator put, to strike vigorous blows for freedom with fearless proclamation. And friends, I want you to understand, these are the normal, everyday things of the Christian life. This is just simply walking with God, with truth and righteousness and faith and a readiness and the scriptures. And to summarize where we've been, I'll just put it this way. To learn to be strong in him, how we defeat evil means to daily put on the gospel and to daily live out the gospel. But Paul has one more thing. He says, live reliantly through persistent prayer. Look at verses 18 through 20. Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Notice what Paul says at the end. He says, pray for others and pray for me. It's that simple. To learn to rely on the strength of Christ is to pray for others and to allow others to pray for you. Let me just say a couple notes on that one. Verse 18 says, making supplication for all the saints. Um, You might ask, what should I pray for others? In other words, in one sense, it's like it's all. I mean, just, I don't know, whatever. There's a lot of things you can pray. Paul says, do it. But let me just be a little bit narrow here for a moment. One of the things that's wonderful about Ephesians is at different moments, Paul tells them what he's praying for them. So in chapter 1, Paul prays after he's just done a riff on the blessings they have in the gospel. He prays that they might know the hope to which God has called them. Or in chapter 3, after Paul's done another riff on what God has done in Christ for between us and him and between the Jews and Gentiles, Paul prays that they might know the width, the breadth, and the height, and the length of the love of God in Christ. In one way or another, Paul in his prayer for others is explicit about his prayer that they might know the love of God and the hope of God in the gospel. In other words, this is not merely something intellectual. This is something that actually is transformed and changed as we pray for each other in that way. So let me ask you, think about your friendships. Think about those in your city group. Think about those, think about those who are married. Think about your family. This is a call to regularly pray for them. But secondly, Paul says, pray for me. Now, this is remarkable, because if there's anybody who I would think wouldn't need prayer, it would be Paul. I don't know why I think that. But he's the most kind of prolific church planner, wrote half the New Testament. I mean, come on. Like, if there's anybody who's got his stuff together, it's Paul. And yet, at the very end, he is not too proud to ask for prayer. He says, pray for me. This last week, um, a man and I were at a pastor's wives retreat, and um, at the end of the last session, they had a time in which it was extended time of worship, but then you could come up front and be prayed for. And to be honest with you, I, there's like hundreds of pastors there, and I'm like, I don't want to go up there. I don't want to feel needy. Yeah, convicted, okay? Yeah, but, but, but you know what that's like. Um, a couple weeks ago, one of our kids came in our room, and they said, hey, would you, would you pray for me? There's, there's a relationship that's really challenging. I know I need to love them and be patient with them. And I was like, dang it. They totally get it. That's it. Because that's where the battle is. Can you be needy? One of the ways that we're going to see our vision lived out Renewing our city through the gospel. It's not actually not too complicated. Paul says, can you pray for one another? And can you ask for prayer for others? Can you do that? Listen, I'll just say this way. A lot of you are at different points 
in your involvement with Redeemer City. But here's my hope, that in your relational spheres, your relational networks, as you plug in deeper, that you would have people around you that you could actually find that you'd feel comfortable praying for you. There'll actually be an opportunity at the end here for others to pray for you as, as we continue in worship. But let me give you one last thing. Did you notice what Paul asked prayer for? He prayed for boldness to share the gospel. The most prolific church planter. Like, can you imagine if like Derek Jeter said, pray that I might be able to hit the, hit the ball, right? Or can you, I mean, just, it's what he does, right? But, but Paul, he prays. He asks for prayer that he might have boldness to share. And here's what this means, Redeemer City. As we consider our vision to see our city renewed by the gospel, it means the proclamation of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done in dying on the cross and rising from the dead, it must not stay in this room. It must find its way into the places where we are, into our friendships, into our coworkers, into our neighborhoods. And do you feel scared about that? I do. So does Paul. And that's the really good news. Because they prayed. And God answered. So Redeemer City, as we seek to live together this vision of renewing our city in the gospel, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning that you would grant us strength to be humble and to receive what you've done for us. God, we pray that you would give us strength to live confidently in who we are because of you. And thirdly, that you would help us to live reliantly in prayer for others and in asking for prayer from others. And that this gospel would not just stay in this room, but it would spread to the friends and the neighbors and the coworkers that we know and we do life with. And we pray this for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen.